Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and, of course, today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you are tuned in to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today to talk with Kendra Mamula, spelled M-A-M-U-L-A to discuss the utterly hilarious sci-fi spoof, The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver. Seriously, Betty, you know what this meteor could mean to science? If we find it, and it's real, it could mean actual advances in the field of science. I have risen! What can we do? Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so stoked on this. I'm so stoked that you showed me this movie that has made my quarantine so sparklingly fun. I'm so happy. (laughs) So yeah, you watched it how many days ago when you rewatched it? Oh my god, I've now watched it probably five or six times in the past like two weeks. Are you for real? Yeah, because I just like, I get so excited because I was like, okay, wait, I think I missed something and then just have to like watch parts of it again. And then I'm like, well, now that I saw that, I have to rewatch the whole thing. I think at this point you have to write him. <laughs> I probably should. You have to send him an email and he'll probably respond. I don't know. Maybe. Hopefully. One can dream. When we say him, we're talking about Larry Blameyer. Blameyer. Yeah. Too much science. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Stop that giggling. It makes me uncomfortable. Larry, Larry's the man behind this movie and we'll get deep into him. But first, let's talk about Kendra. So Hender Mamula is a total package, I'm going to be honest. Um, you got your BA in art studio from Santa Fe College in 2012, followed up very quickly by a BFA in photography from the San Francisco Art Institute in 2014. Photographer, artist, and self-titled object obsessor. She's worked on all kinds of sets in LA and Virginia. She's now been in Virginia for two years, coming in August. She's worked on sets in jobs like art director, set dresser, and buyer. She worked as an art production assistant on The Unicorn, directed by Robert Schwartzman, who's part of the Francis Ford Coppola dynasty. He's the guy that directed The Princess Diaries. Recently, she worked as a buyer for The Walking Dead sequel, World Beyond. And most recently, she and her partner Jake have been working their butts off for the Richmond Mutual Aid Supply Drive. Kendra, tell me about that. Uh, the Supply Drive um, is a community network of, of people just together uh, getting food into the hands of people who need it through a hotline. Um, we have that over 150 volunteers doing different jobs, helping out, um, driving, packing, getting orders, and making sure everyone in the Richmond and outside the Richmond area is getting fed and medical supplies, infant care, and anything else they need. That's utter heroism. Yeah, for those listening sometime in the future, we are deep in the midst of coronavirus, corona time, and people really need your help. Um, you can donate at drop-off locations or just do the do the right thing and hop onto Venmo at Richmond Mutual Aid and send them some money. Um, Kendra, though, you can follow her wonderful shots on Instagram at DJing Your Funeral, spelled DJing, one of the funniest, best Instagram titles handles I've ever seen so thank you go follow her <laughs> all right Kendra why did you choose the film The Last Skeleton of Cadaver so I love sci-fi I love reading sci-fi I love all of that fun stuff but I also grew up watching Leslie Nielsen like one-liners like you know like right shallow to the face humor and um one of my first boyfriends in high school knew that got me this movie from a clearance rack 
and gave it to me. We watched it and it became like my favorite movie of all time. And like I grew up watching sci-fi or not sci-fi. Um, I grew up watching more like war movies from the 50s with my dad. So I kind of really had that love of like a lot of the more static um, shots and everything. So this movie kind of just not only landed it, but landed it in such a hilarious way. Yeah. And it's, it is very timely that we are recording this on 420. So kids, that doesn't mean anything Absolutely yet not. to you. Um, but adults, this is, let's just say they go hand in hand. Let's put it that we'll, way. we'll put a hard wink on that. Yeah. The hard wink. Um, this movie is utter perfection and I don't say that lately. It's just really, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to read an intro. So be, be warned. There are a lot of spoilers coming up in this episode of they came from outer space. However, while we will have lots of spoilers, the show's focus is on craft as well as content. So don't get mad. In fact, some studies show that a little bit of light spoilage can actually increase your enjoyment of the film. In my honest opinion, I knew the full plot up front and it only made me enjoy the movie more. So I find it's good to listen before you watch. But if you really want to go watch the movie, turn off your radio and pause and come back to find us on Mixcloud. And um, let's jump into it. So... Released in 2001 for Transom Films, The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver is a daffy parody of low-budget sci-fi movies from the 50s and 60s created by Larry Blameyer, the film's director, screenwriter, and co-star. And let me tell you, it is hilarious. The story follows an extremely scientist man named Dr. Paul Armstrong, who is a scientist, and his devoted, vapid 50s dishwasher out of a wife, Betty, on the search for a meteorite full of the most elusive of all elements, atmospherium. But they aren't alone. Also on the hunt are two curious alien humanoids, a deeply evil scientist, a catwoman, played by Larry's real wife, Jennifer Blair, a radioactive monster, and a very, very rude skeleton with plans to take over the world. Who wakes the lost skeleton of cadaver? Oh, it's you, the stupid one. It's a romp, wild science fiction proportions, and it's a true send-up of Cold War-era B-movies. Highly recommend finding it wherever you can. You don't know the lost skeleton of Cadavra, but you will. You will. That was a great intro for that. Ugh. All right, so I'm going to hand it to you. The, the The biggest thing that you want to talk about with this movie, I think you mentioned, is props. Yes. So tell me why this movie is worth watching and what props do. I mean, so I this movie is done on a absolute shoestring, like a shoestring budget. And what's great about it with like spoofing like like movies that spoof is like you can use everyday objects and really really show the audience that it is an everyday object and basically transform it into something different. So uh, the couple of the ones that I have that I love is the transmutatron, which is the gun that the aliens use to change themselves and or other things, and it's basically just like a staple gun, a piece of like metal piping and like a couple of other things just like literally glued together and at one point the um uh the alien wife like kind of tilts it to the audience and it's like pure view of it and you can see it and it's just absolutely incredible yeah it's so i remember we all screamed caulking gun (laughs) like out loud (laughs) It's incredible. Like it literally is a cocking gun that they use and they just kind of jazz it up. And you're like, yeah, that's, I don't know what a transmutatron looks like. So that's definitely it. Like, 
Hmm. It's it's nice, especially for me and other people who do props. It's really, really wonderful to see things done like cheap, but like still well done that you can get the point across, but you don't have to like spend a million dollars or like learn how to like change foam core or anything. You know, you can make it with like everyday stuff that you have in your house. I know, but Kendra, you're touching on something that is the deeper core question of this film, which is like, we've all seen shoestring budget movies. Mm -hmm. We've all seen spoofs. I've seen so many movies that attempt to do what this movie does and none of them do it nearly as well. And this, the props is a great example. Like maybe it's that it doesn't take itself seriously, but why does it work? Like, why do the props work? Because I mean, like they, as, as what they're trying to do is like really, really shallow. Like this is bad in the best ways of just being like, we did not put a lot of time into it, but we are still giving you that um, more like of the atmosphere of what you need to like get the context clues. So um, like in the alien spaceship, it's basically just like a board and it has a bunch of just little like meters all over it, like haphazardly just like put on top of the wall. They have no, like there's no buttons, nothing. It's literally just meters. It is. They're just meters attached. It's so true. And it's like so beautiful that it's like, you don't need, it literally, they barely probably just did it on one wall. Like there's nothing else to it yet. You're like, yeah, they're in a spaceship. Of course. Like mm. it's, it's just a beautiful way of like, it, I feel like because most of that movie is more of the dialogue and more um, static uh, shots of everything that like, m- it doesn't have to be uh, extremely dressed to make a point, which I hmm. which I think is good when you definitely have a shoestring budget that you can get away with a lot with, you know, a little that you have. I mean, my dad mentioned after watching it, like the key to this film is committing. Mm-hmm. Like everyone fully commits to the silliness, to the weirdness. Like, the, I mean, not a lot, a lot of these actors are not particularly well known, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Everybody's... They're his friends, people who are actors. I mean, from what I could tell, the woman who plays Lattice, who's my favorite, has only really acted for him and a few other, and done a few other things, right? Like, I don't know how he manages to make that work, but it's like, is it just that, like, these are his buddies, you know? Yeah. Like, how is it that everyone can commit so fully to holding a caulking gun and being 100% sure that it's going to turn four animal creatures from the woods into a human woman. Oh, which you know? is beautiful. Uh, the, it's so good. The only thing I can think of is because he is a big theater guy, I'm uh-huh. guessing he probably pulls a lot of people from theater. So these people are used to what, like overacting for, you know, the stage. And it really works mm-hmm. for this kind of stuff because like the overacting is part of it. Like, you're saying some of the most ridiculous lines and you really do have to like overact them or they will fall flat. The other one of the other uh, favorite of mine is the science kit that ends up coming up. Yes. Time. Yes. It's the same like 1950s, like little test tubes and a little, you know, like, no, like literally nothing. And yet it's, they're so pitiful that like him using them is so, hilarious in and of itself and it's, like yeah and it's like yeah. a big scientist and like this you know supposed to be a crazy you know lunatic scientist that's bringing back the skeleton to life and they both are using the same crappy 50s science kit like it's it's those little jabs that you're like this is incredible like it, there's nothing else to it and that's when you're like science is happening 
takes it takes guts to be able to do that i think you know to just be like yeah you know what let's use the same science kit and let's actually put the box that shows that it's a science kit on the wall behind him tilted back so you can see that it says like science kit he literally looks like he just like grabbed it took it out of the box and put it out and like i know uh, sometimes i have this issue and i know um a couple other people sometimes do when you're like set dressing you always sometimes you put a little too much because you're like you feel like you really need to tell this story when a lot of times just a little bit tells a lot more because you're giving like someone just the context clues of like three things and they're already there. You don't need to like keep adding and kind of muffling everything else happening in that scene. Oh, beautifully said. That's really that's really insightful. Like you don't have to overdo it. Just a little goes a long way. So one of the pits of trivia about this film said most of the props were were purchased on eBay. Others were inexpensive props made of household items like toilet paper tubes, candle holders, and cock guns. A number of the props were obtained by looking around the cabin in which part of the film was shot, including the mashed potatoes the cast were seen eating. Stop, really? Yes. And doesn't that make it, isn't that great? They're like, let's just use what's in the cabin. Why not? I mean, it's technically true to the space, so why not? I guess that must go back to his his acting on stage, his experience on stage, right? It's like, let's just use what we have. Let's see what's here. And they're used to building off of only having minimal props, I think. I read, I read an interview with him where he was talking about when he was writing, he had to make sure that he was constantly changing scenery because he wanted to make sure he was making it very clear that it was a movie mm-hmm. and not a play. But you're right, it does seem to benefit from his his stage experience. Yeah, I've definitely had that uh, where I worked on a student film um, and they gave me, as a production designer, gave me a $500 budget and $200 of that went to the van I had to, to rent for all of my stuff. Um, so anytime hmm. we were on, like, if, cause we like shot at someone's house and I was like, would you not have any problem me using other stuff from other rooms? They're like, as long as you put it back. So it was like a lot of times my hmm. prop houses are other things in other people's like houses, you know, yeah. you just have to make with what you, what you can. And then you, something, sometimes something will surprise you and it comes out to be a really, really cool subconscious, like, um, ideal of what like what this character is dealing with you're tuned in to wrirlp 97.3 fm richmond indie radio i'm cameron kitt here with kendra manuel talking about the lost skeleton of cadavra and we are talking about all sorts of things including props and so um one of my favorite things that I took from one room and then put it in another was <laughs> we found old photos that were not of anyone in the family, but it's someone that someone had of old cruise photos, but they were really, really odd. And one of them had a, like an older woman next to these like two clowns and she looked miserable. And we put that into the house, into the room. And because the woman didn't know her family, like didn't know her parents like at all. And this, it's not that great of a film, but, um, but it's, hey, it's a student film. Yeah, okay. I know. I, I get, <laughs> hey, listen, for what they did, it was great. Um, and uh, she was supposed to be like mentally unstable, but you weren't quite mm-hmm. sure. Um, so we really liked, which was really fun for me is putting just like these small things that I was finding mm-hmm. and just kind of like, kind of making you feel um, a little uneasy, um, which was great. It was one of my favorite things that I actually kept that photo. I still have it. 
That's awesome. So that, that leads me to a question that's really been burning in my soul since I found out more about what you do and I watched this movie, like it all kind of came together. Can you explain what props, what, what, what the difference between art direction, art design and buying is like, what do those different roles mean? Um, so the main person that, that kind of decides everything is the production designer. So they work with the director to create like the feeling and it, which uh, the characters um, like if there's their room or uh, what the world is supposed to feel like, like big general uh, feeling. Art director takes everything that the director and production designer work on and basically make it real. So they will hire everyone. They will make sure everything's going on. So the, the construction's going on the way it needs to, um, you know, the set dressers are doing what they need to and all that stuff. Um, set decorator works with production designer and the art director to decide on what's physically going to go into these spaces, um, whether it's furniture, art, all of that stuff. The buyer, which is me, um, I work with the set decorator and we all sit there and decide what's going to go in each room and then we have to go out and find it. So usually a set, a set decorator will give us a pretty vague feeling like we need something that feels a little modern, but still feels um, attainable to this age of getting. So you have to go out and find like, let's we'll say like, okay, maybe they have like a really nice dresser, but also the stuff on top of it seems like something you'd get from a thrift store. So like, you just kind of have to keep feeling. And then when you get to like the dresser, all right, you bought a dresser. Great. Now you have to put everything on top of it. So you have to buy everything so you really have to get a feel of who these people are or what the room is supposed to feel like and then from there I get to play and just be like maybe this person has this oh if they have this and they should also have these photos with it you know you get to um, really flesh out who this character is wow that thank you so much I actually never really understood all those intricacies I've never worked on a really big set where there was that level of I guess hierarchy yeah Right. Um, but that sounds like really fun and freeing. And I mean, I've, I've heard in other podcasts and seen in other behind the scenes, there's different levels, but all of those things really, really, really drive characterization and help the actors. Right. Yes. Right. That's what they point on. But you you made this point earlier about how for them in this wonderful movie, The Last Skeleton of Cadaver, that the less is more, but I've also heard about things like, you know, where in Mad Men, they fill the whole desk with, with 60s items which camp are you a fan of? Do you like to give just a few really specific items for them to focus on? Or do you want to go really lush and fill in the whole world? I am like, I am a maximalism, like head to toe for sure. Like I have just so many things because I love objects. I love being mm. around objects, touching objects, seeing objects. Mm -hmm. I have a really, I, I just love objects and that's why I love my job. Um, I get to buy objects for a living. Um, and for me, I really like, um, giving as much as I can, but mostly for, I would say like background work. So one of my favorite ones, when we worked on the, um, pilot for Swagger, we had this huge, like, um, gas company scene. So a bunch of people in, um, cubicles and we got to go through and what one of my set decorators taught me, which was really great is you sit down and you're like, okay, this person's name is Alan, he really loves his family, but also is super into fishing and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of just start, even though no one's going to see this at all, you sit down and you think of a person and then you make that desk 
as that person. Wow. Then you move on to the next one. You're like, this is Peggy. She's super into cats and loves knitting Whoa. and blah, blah, blah. And then you just keep doing that. Like it's probably going to be on screen for maybe 10 seconds, but for that 10 seconds, someone fully real, like feels that room as mm-hmm. a, like people have been working there for years. Holy cow, Kendra, that must be so satisfying. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it can be a little overwhelming when you're like, I have 12 desks to do, but uh, it's really, really fun when you, you really get into it and you're giving people like kids names and telling them what they're like, what their whole calendar is. Like, it's great. It's, it's really fun to like, just fall into that. All right. Well, so what's your favorite prop in this movie? Ooh, okay. It's so hard because I'm like, I... I know. I know. It's hard to say. The skeleton is also... It is a character, but also its sense of it as a prop and being used technically, like, as a prop is one of my favorite parts. Um, It's between that and what I... Which is weird enough is the alien wine glasses they use. Okay, I knew you would love... (laughs) (laughs) The skeleton's definitely mine. The skeleton is mine because they turn that prop that everyone has had the exact same one in their science classroom. Like it is so clear. Like they, I love that they just don't even try to make it different. And they give that skeleton jazz and life and spunk. And just, I mean, the way he moves when he climbs down the rock and this, I mean, you're talking about my favorite scene. I'm screaming. I'm screaming. (laughs) He shambles down that rock. Do it. Do it. Excellent. Shut up. Follow me. follow me why is he leading okay whatever he's the leader he i guess that scene is literally like again for people who have not seen it it is a static shot of a skeleton with all of his limbs on string that you can clearly see yes so clearly and he's like climb down this rock and he's not technically really moving it's just his limbs are moving (laughs) but his like wrists are all like screwed up and like it's and it's multiple times and I've never cried so hard watching like I couldn't handle it it's it's the yeah. best because they know exactly what they're doing at that point yep folks if you need a reprieve from the world right now this movie will give it to you and if you liked Mystery Science Theater 3000 and you can handle that this will be an utter joy for you in that you know I think there probably are people who won't love this movie and who don't sure. love this movie Right? And that's okay. Larry is making this specifically for you and me. <laughs> and <laughs> the the fact that it is so self-aware, I think, makes it really effective. Right? Like, I when I saw the first time that his arm lifts up, I thought that they must have lit the string so that they, you could see the string. Yeah. I was like, they had to make... You know what I yeah. mean? There's that one part when, like, the uh, near the end when the skeleton's, like, sitting down in a chair... And his arms are moving. You can literally see someone's hand in the shot moving. <laughs> like it's things like that that I just like. I, I just love it so much because it it is so aware of what it's doing, and it's not trying to hide anything, and it shouldn't. You yeah, you, but it it just goes to show. Like if you think, oh, I've this has already been done before. Spoofs of '60s movies have already been done before. Yeah, of course they have, but not by you. Yeah, and he proves it so well. Like. Anyone can show his, your specific voice is what makes it different. And yeah, and the level of commitment. And you don't need a lot of money to do it. And that's what's really great no. too. But it's also devastating because I just spent a bunch of money making a short <laughs> film. I'm so mad at myself. That's your, that's your next one is a shoestring budget. Sci-fi. I just feel like 
Yeah, and then and then like so you can the proof is in the pudding. It's the same thing with primer. Like serious or silly, you can do it on a shoestring Absolutely. budget. Have you seen primer? Yes. Do you know oh yeah. yeah. So like it upset everyone because it got it won Sundance with like a four thousand dollar budget, mm-hmm. and all of the filmmakers out there like me who save up all their money in order to blow it on nice cameras and lush stuff was like, dang it! Oh, oh, I am <laughs> the same way. <laughs> I've spent so much money on like doing a ridiculous photo shoot and then someone comes in with like a point and shoot camera and took these incredible photos probably in 20 minutes and I'm like yeah it looks flossy looking good but um but but it's you know what but it's 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 worth it to appreciate the art in all of its forms. I think this is a masterclass in how, yeah, you can make things work. I don't know where they got those glasses, those alien glasses. I know the ones that uh, the scientist uses is like with the the uh, spiral. That's definitely holds like it's a little candle votive. I'm not sure about the ones that the actual the aliens use, but it's definitely definitely ones that hold candles. I it's again one of my favorite moments of just being like those. You know, those aren't wine glasses. But, but you're right. I think it fits the story to just take something that is real and make it like already made and just give it a totally different life, right? Like that just makes it, it's like, well, they're alien, they're alien wine glasses. Yes. Like, duh, you know? Um, can I ask, can I ask about Walking Dead? Yes. Tell me something cool about it that you did. Oh man, so much. Because it's a like apocalyptic movie, you get to have like a huge range of stuff you get to buy. Um, so we were buying stuff from like, you know, super, super amazing, gorgeous, nice furniture, like pieces I probably would never be able to afford in my entire life to also, we are going into like strangers warehouses and just picking through the stuff they've said that they have not even touched for years. So like I have my favorite guy, Jim, shout out to Jim. I love him. Um, We love you. He I will like call him and be like, Hey, so I need this like really weird thing. And he'd be like, great. Uh, do you need it in this size, this size come over. And we just go through his warehouse and find like random stuff. Like I needed to fill a warehouse that looked like it used to be an old tire factory. And I mean, like okay. we're pulling out like weird knobs and equipment and mm-hmm. like, just, I mean, absolutely. Cause it didn't have to work. So we had like old saw bands, like literally anything that you could think of. But it was a very weird um, time to be like, I really need to get a tetanus shot at this point because like, yeah, I am digging through metal, but yeah, I, I had the best time. I had the best time because like, it's just like whatever they would like, just throw the most random stuff at you and you'd be like, uh, or yeah, okay. I'm just, I'm going to go find this for sure. And then it's just panic for like a week of like trying to, mm-hmm. because most people are so used to like, when I worked in LA, it's prop houses everywhere all the time. You can find literally whatever you need at a prop house here. There's no prop houses there are nothing. So you're just relying on, uh, thrift stores, normal stores, uh, eBay, or when you find people like Jim, love you, Jim, um, who just have a bunch of stuff in a warehouse and you get to go through. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. I remember Jim had this weird ice, ice maker. And then I call him like two months later and be like, Jim, you still got that ice maker. So it's, it's nice to have relationships with vendors, but also I get to find some really weird stuff. Yeah. I mean, not having prop houses is definitely a constraint that forces you to think outside the box. Oh yeah. I think like, okay. Do you have anything, it could be for Walking Dead or something else where it was sort of a, 
Larry Blameyer. And, you know, his prop master was his brother, Corey. Oh, my God. No, I did not know that. Yes. In this movie, his prop master was his brother. Shout out, Corey. Corey, Uh, killing it. (laughs) Killing killing the game. Killing the game. Um, If, like, is there anything that you had that was a wine glass moment where it was something that was clearly not meant to be the thing that you played off as a tire or tire factory moment or something else that you had kind of live a double life? Ooh, trying to think. Oh, well, we did. I think this is what a lot of people do, but it still makes me laugh every time. We had to have this like really fancy, nice like lab. Like it's filled with like gorgeous, like stainless steel equipment. But we also needed like to put things on. And, you know, they always have those really nice um, like paper that they put uh, all of their utensils on when they're sanitized. We couldn't find any. So we did the beautiful uh, puppy pads. Uh, you just turn them around and <laughs> delightful, delightful. So as they're as they're taking <laughs> off some stuff, it's a it's a it's a puppy pad, which is one of my favorites. Awesome. We used weird like vacuum tubes for stuff to like make it look everything look more sciency when it's really just it goes from one thing to nothing. Like it's literally just nothing. Yeah. So the, that now that takes us right back to things that just go to nothing. Yep. Takes us right back to skeleton, right? Yep. <laughs> Things that mean nothing. I love, I love the ship. The yeah. ship, oh, it's just, it's like worse than I could have made on my yes. own if I was a kid. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Like somehow, somehow the craftsmanship is like worse than I could ever achieve if I was like blinded. You know what I mean? Like it's just like amazing how shoddy it looks. And it's like the way that they do that is, it, I don't know. We, we've both seen those 50s movies. Yeah. It's exactly the same, right? So we're going to take a quick break and come back and Kendra's going to illuminate us a little bit about dialogue and we're going to talk about the craft. So stick around. Oh, I'm scared. This is insane. This makes no sense, I tell you. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space. I am Cameron Kitt, joined by Kendra Mamula. We are talking about the lost skeleton of Cadavra. <laughs> There's a lot in what you say, Betty. In many ways, it's hard to be a scientist's wife, the wife of a scientist. And yet in other ways, it's good. Really good. You always know the right thing to say, Dr. Paul Armstrong. Whoa, I sleep now. (laughs) Bring the meteor to the skeleton. That would be me. I sleep now. I said that around the house like 50 times. (laughs) I wish I could do his voice. Because it's Larry that is the skeleton. Yeah. And it's just so yeah. beautiful. It's incredible. Yeah. This this skeleton is the only person in the movie who is, like, really aggressive and rude to everyone else, as far as I can I guess besides the evil scientist. But he's just really bossy oh, yeah. and mean. Um, but it works because he's, like, he's like, you got to go figure out how to get this atmospherium. And he's like, well, okay, how do I do that? That's none of my concern. You do that. Like, I sleep down. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, so relatable. Yeah. Um, That's why he is the boss of the whole thing. Because, so, yeah, because he's got stuff to do. He's got stuff to do, like sleep. So I, want, I definitely want you to tell me about your thoughts on dialogue. But before we do that, let's just share a few of our favorite lines. Can we do that? Yes. Right, yes. Hit, me, hit me with some of your faves. So one of my favorites, by far, is when it's like near the end and things are getting a little crazy and um, it's the husband and wife. Why, why now am I forgetting their names? It's Paul Armstrong. 
Oh, Larry. Oh, no. His name is Dr. Paul and Betty. Betty yeah. So right. uh, they're like talking about like things are about to get crazy. And she just looks at her husband and says, well, if I wanted to have a safe life, I guess I wouldn't have married a man who studies rocks. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, incredible. It's great. It's, it's talk about commitment. Like it's deadpan. It's so good. And I mean, like so many of these lines again are just like straight to the point. Like there's nothing really, but that one is just like, (laughs) it it just speaks so much to that film. I love it so much. (laughs) Uh, Another one again, Betty killing it uh, is Paul is like, kind of freaking out because his new alien friends are just out there getting hurt. And she just said like, and she just like looks at her husband and it's just like, I'm sure they're fine. Paul, those two came from a thousand miles, a thousand <laughs> miles. Like literally. They're sturdy. They're so sturdy. Like, yeah. Her character is really the, I think the driving force of the film, like she represents, I mean, she actually is kind of the whole plot she's the outsider she becomes spoiler alert essentially like this kind of lover in a way of the alien creature right yep. like she helps she aids she befriends the two aliens alongside her husband because she's such a good housewife and helps destroy the skeleton i mean don't really destroy him and she's she still really making tapioca pudding during all of this and in her heels. in her heels <laughs> like i yeah. love i she she had some of the best lines and I mean them together, like the, the doctor and Betty had some of my favorite lines. Um, like, yeah, they're like talking about how like he put the atmospherium like on the dish of like the cabins dishes. And they're like, we better not eat like on these dishes, you know, just saying like cutesy things to each other. And then he just gets really serious. He's like, seriously, we will clean the dishes before we go. <laughs> I really do wonder how much of it was improv yeah. and how much of it was his script. Do you have any insight on that? Do you know if he did any improv? Not that I really know of. Um, I actually tried to find the script to see if it was online because the sequel uh-huh. to the one of the, uh, is online, but The Lost Skeleton is not. If anyone has access to the script, please reach out to us. The most, the one that I see get a lot of love is also one of my favorites, which is early on in the film where he... Why shake when we can touch other things like lips, says Paul to his wife. <laughs> like lips. But okay, my absolute favorite lines are Lattice, the space alien, becoming strangely enamored with her dress, where she says, I am strangely drawn to this inverted cloth funnel. Yes. Like that one got me deep. I don't know why, because it's like, that's how you, when you when you're a femme. It's exactly how you feel about the dress. Yep. You look down at it and you're like, this serves no purpose, but I'm strangely drawn to inverted cloth bonds. Yep. Like, I kind of you're like feeling it. it. I have an overwhelming desire to participate in the purchasing of many cloth funnels, some I can't even spare the expense for. Is that so very wrong? She and the man who played Crowbar did such a good job carrying themselves and just getting really into the 50s version of Aliens. I thought the way they comported themselves was so funny. And also it was really touching that they had this arc of, of like couple friendship, like that the two of them become like a, like, like they end up going on like a double date. Yes. And it's really cute. Like I was like, Oh, I didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? Like it was so delightful. So tell me what your thoughts are about dialogue. Uh, Okay. So I am a huge fan of one-liners. I 
as I said before, watched Leslie Nielsen movies from, I felt like birth. Um, so that really like kind of transformed the way that I see language, I feel like, and the way dialogue is, where like short to the point, in your face, not really much to it. And a lot with like a lot of B movies is the dialogue is not where they spend their time, like at all. So everything is like, again, short to the point, like not really that many descriptives, just like, this is what we're doing. Here we go. And this is it. And what I love about the, his use of dialogue in this is like, it's that times like a hundred where it's like, yeah. here is science. I'm doing science. Science? Love science. Let's go do science. And that's like a sentence. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's, <laughs> it's so great that he like <laughs> amplifies this like dryness, but it's like the repeti repetition again, over and over again of just being like, I hope the audience gets that we're doing science, you know, like it's such a, yeah. again, this is like a way that they're really pulling you into like, you are in part of this joke. Like you are in this joke of like, no one else gets what's happening, but you do in a way like, Oh, well, it's, I, Oh, well, <laughs> everyone on this movie says, Oh, oh yeah. Well. Humor through repetition is so, powerful i think it's, so it's like a mix of the exposition you write from these 50s movies of like i'm ranger rick and i'm here standing here on the side of this hill to help anyone i hope no one walks by you know like exactly the kinds of things that would happen but the use of repetition is so genius like there's a line that the skeleton says which is together we will rule the world together yeah. <laughs> yes. like that's such a simple thing and yet so powerful to do because it's i think it probably takes like an active choice by the writer to force yourself to write a line like that yeah to literally type out together we will rule the world together like it's unbelievable and the, the the whole thing that i wonder in like through the entire film like that all these people are like going through this they all have something they're trying to figure out but instead of showing that they're literally telling you by saying i wonder and then someone's always like i also wonder like I, <laughs> there is no like you don't get like a subconscious, like it's everything is literally on like right on point. Like it's, it's insane. Like at the point, the end, it, the, as like the dialogue is, uh, as the movie's ending, it always says, I also wonder, like, it's crazy. It's, it's just so amazing that there's so much repetition. And that also like the idea of this atmospherium, which is like the meteor he's trying to find, but they're still always saying like atmospherium, meteor rock like it's never they never really say the same thing twice essentially but it's still mm -hmm. the same thing mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it's so good so larry um gave some inf insight into his writing process so you mentioned that he had had a lot of experience in stage which is true mm -hmm. he he said that transitioning from stage to screen it was the longest learning curve he'd ever had and that there's such a big difference and that the obvious difference is that stage is dialogue driven and you can see that that's what is the strongest kind of current under this film but aside from mood one important technical thing I try to keep reminding myself is to just start writing don't be afraid of writing a piece of crap first draft it's the only way to know where your script is heading and what it's about it's really hard to stick to because our natural inclination is to write something super wonderful right off the bat but screw that and that's his quote. And I praise that because, you know, it's it's exactly right. When you watch a movie like this, you think, okay, but I'll never write something that funny. Yeah. 
Well, it's not like he wrote that something that funny the first time. <laughs> no. Right? And what, I think it's a, I think he said he wrote this in four days and then it was shot in 10 days. Yeah. Like, I, it's not exactly making me feel good, but yeah. Okay. But it's like, it's, I think maybe the point of this film is like, he maybe purposely wrote it to be as bad as possible. Right? For sure. So and I mean, like he's he been, hoped, maybe he didn't edit it at all. I don't know. And I know he's been working on forever. Uh, so he has his own dictionaries which it like it explains so much of like how this dialogue definitely came together so I think a lot of this is something he already had in his pocket and then he brought it out for this film so his insane dictionaries are Larry Blamere's Blamere of terms you may not know with unrelated illustrations so oh I want that so they're just like words um that are either do exist or ones that he's like I think like mutated into make like to meaning something else but also like an average word you already know he like changes the definition of it so it just becomes like what com- okay so there's a couple of them that are on the back of um the first one so one of them was comely adjective able to come on command as in that dog sure is comely <laughs> Wow, the illustration is very unsettling. Right? Like a, on the cover. I am unsettled immediately. Glamoury of terms. Um, oh, then there's a wonderful uh, male pattern baldness, but it's spelled M-A-I-L. Noun, hereditary receding of a man's hairline in the shape of an envelope or postal stack. <laughs> like, now, this man is very obsessed with foreheads because he has a whole movie about foreheads. Um, just so you guys know. Yes. If you're not interested enough... Just look up the cover of the film, The Attack of the Killer Foreheads. I think that's the yes, name. Hold on. it should be it. It's, yeah. Um, okay, so I have a few things I want to touch on before we wrap yes. up. One is Bronson Canyon, the place where he filmed. That was the one thing, the permit for that film cost more than any other one line item in their budget. Just to get the permit. It was the single largest expense in the entire budget, which was, I think, $40,000. So that alone, the fact that this movie is made for $40,000 is such a feat. I have never talked about a movie on this show that was anywhere close to that low. Bronson Canyon, and this is just this is just beautiful stuff. It's the reason that they wanted to shoot there is because it's in Los Angeles, in Griffith Park, and it's really well known in the sci-fi community. Uh, among 50 science fiction and horror films shot in Bronson Canyon are Attack of the Crab Monsters, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Spider, The Spider, It Conquered the World, The Brain from Planet Aris, King Dinosaur, Invisible Invaders, Night of the Blood Beast, <laughs> Return of Dracula, Robot Monster, 1953, Teenage Caveman, 1958, and Teenagers from Outer Space from 1959. So I want to see Night of the Blood Beast, but um, like the yeah, I think he he was really interested in paying homage to films that were clearly important to him in his childhood. And I asked my dad, who watched all the same movies Larry did, mm-hmm. I was like, "What's so great about them?" And my dad's like, "They weren't great, but it was all you had." Like, it was literally all you had. And I think that's important to recognize is, like, there was no other sci-fi except for B-movies for a long time. Like, you and I have Arrival and all sorts of high-end quality science stuff. But you didn't really have that if you grew up in the 60s and 70s. Like, science fiction really hit a low point. And I think if you grew up, then you're you're affectionist for things that were considered campy. Right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, Another thing that I really love is like you can definitely tell a lot of like high end or like high uh, high budget 
sci-fi films still really do the you can find stuff in real life and change it to make it to something else so oh really like one of them that um it's such a great thing so there's the show the expanse love that show well um there we, we did an episode on it actually on the show, you did on the whole series yeah carlina muglia she's awesome gonna have to listen, listen to, that. to that episode yes so good there's a part where um it's like a small character is like putting in this like light into the wall and you can clearly tell that it's a camping light that they just kind of spray painted. And it's like, it's great because it it really does work for what it, like what it's supposed to be. But like me being me, I'm like, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a camping light. Like that's not like, that's not something made for that, you know? So it's great to still see, um, a lot of prop masters probably doing what they do well, which is taking, you know, normal everyday objects that are pretty cheap and making it look like something high end or, you know, scientific and, or, you know, like from the future. I don't, it's, it's really great to still see that happening. Well, Kendra, it's also kind of a curse, right? If you work in film, you never really get to lose that lens of noticing that, right? It's hard to fully, fully immerse yourself into the world of the film when you can notice the camping light. And I wonder if part of the reason why you love this movie so much is that you can completely let your guard down because everything is exactly what you see. That's probably what that is for sure. And it's definitely like, it's it's fun that everyone's on that same level. You know, like mm-hmm. I can watch that movie with anyone and anyone's going to point out the same things I'm going to. Uh, I, yeah. So it's it's great that I'm not the jerk that's standing here and be like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> like, yeah. So. so the other thing that I need to talk about, though, is that the budget was $40,000, but this film was not a flop. It literally made money. It had $143,000 total gross, which means Larry made money on this movie, which is like so unbelievable to me. Like, heck yes. And it was purchased you know? by Sony, too. Like, Sony. It was purchased by Sony. Like, that's so great. And it's it's nice to see that, like, this is someone someone made this because they wanted to you know, and mm-hmm. it, it did get the recognition it deserves. It's just nice when you see someone who puts like their full heart into something and doesn't expect much out of it and gets and gets a lot out of it. I'm pretty sure that the reason it got picked up by Sony is this Hi, I'm short I watched, uh, this man, Mike Schlesinger, who makes trailers. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that he's part of the reason it got picked up. He And then he walks you through how they made the trailer. Um, <gasps> He said he saw it in a film, like, what is it? He saw it in, like, you know, someplace in L.A., mm-hmm. right? They've shown filming in L.A. Nobody knew what it was. And he said that because everyone was laughing so hard that he's like, Sony, we need to buy this movie. Yeah. And he convinced Sony to buy it, which is just the dream. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Dream. To love something so much that it really does come through to everyone else. Um, my parents are some of the most notoriously hard to please people when it comes to movies ever. And I think that must be why I went into film, right? Yeah. Is like that they, I, I like, I, th- I think it's more like it's maybe three out of 10 movies that they watch get a pass of like, yeah, that was good. You know? So like, they're really hard to please. And this movie actually passed. And that's what's so impressive is like, it's so unassuming and it's, it's so genuine. Um, the fact that the monster is literally just wearing boots, like they don't care <laughs> to give him monster feet. No. Like, that's too much work and he's so cute like even my dad was like the design of the monster is so he's cute. so cute he's so cute with his big eyes like i love it i love all of it the fact that he's clearly just wearing egg crate paper yep. like shellac just just hanging on 
and it doesn't feel like it's too serious. No. I think, I think when you try and take it too seriously, that just doesn't work. So that's the last, the only thing I do want to mention before I let you kind of give final remarks is, did you know that they're making a musical? Yes. Version? Which makes me okay. so happy because that is like, I'm, I'll be front row center to that show when it comes out because <laughs> you should just make, you should do props. Buying for I them. really should. I would make whatever <laughs> I, I will work with whoever for free if I can, because that would be so fun. Just be like, you know what? Here's, you know, like here's this water bottle. Why don't we not make it into like a hat and like doing weird mm-hmm. stuff? Like mm-hmm. people who just can do that on a whim are, I, I want to be them so badly. And mm-hmm. I would like to learn from anyone that does that. Yeah, I think it, it it takes it takes multiple people to be able to have somebody hand you a cock gun with, did you say a stapler? Yeah, it, attached it's to definitely it? like a, a nail, like a, or a, yeah, a staple gun. And have the entire crew and cast be like, yes, perfect. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, it's a whole, it seems like a village um, is required for that. It's gorgeous, because they're probably just like, uh, well, maybe this, and everyone's like, yeah, okay, this could work. And it did. Did you find yourself when in the five or six times you've watched this in the past weeks, do you find yourself wondering what it was like on set and how hard it would have been to keep a straight face? 100%. Absolutely. And like, I, I would have loved to see like how the script supervisor worked on this because they have to like work with like the continuity, the continuality of like the verbal and visual mm-hmm. between each shot. And I know a lot of it is like misdone. So um, like a jacket moves at one point. Mm-hmm. and all that and it's definitely like made to be a point so I, I would just love to see like how that was worked out on IMDB you know they always have goofs which sometimes just annoys me right like it's like you can see that the light bulb flickers you know yeah. I always that always kind of bother me but this the only goof written is just like all goofs in this film are intentional yes <laughs> like I've never seen that before which I thought was really great so Kendra with with about a minute remaining okay. Tell me, what is it that we can learn from this film, especially as low-budget filmmakers? Like, what is what is the takeaway that we can learn from The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver? I mean, for me, um, I, it's just so perfectly shows how a shoestring budget can actually work in your favor because it does, it gives you, like, you know, a little bit of a constraint, but from that comes out some, like, really insane creativity when it comes to whether props, um, how shots are done, um, how long you even need to like keep on one certain scene. Uh, I think they just do a really good job of showing that like you can make a movie and you can make it on whatever you want and it will work out if you put your heart into it. And if you work with people who really, really also enjoy what you're doing, because that's a really big point. Everyone has to feel what they're making is amazing or it's just going to fall apart. And you can definitely tell there is a lot of love in this movie. So, Batman, what do you do? Do? I can do anything. I have no restrictions. That's the spirit. I'm the same way with science. I like my dress so very much. That's what I can do. Um, this uh, drink is very refreshing. Thank you, Paul and Betty. Oh, not at all. Oh, shopping! Yes, uh, no, no, not at all. Shopping isn't wrong at all, especially for a woman. Sometimes I wish it were, right, Bamman? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't know about that, Paul. Well, Betty, we've done science today. 
there's I don't know how much love there is between Larry and Betty. I mean, between Dr. Paul and Betty. But they love each they other. They do love each other. They're good for each other. They definitely are. Um, she's, I want to, I kind of want to be married to Betty, I'll be honest. She keeps like, him from doing too much science, that's for sure. Oh, I know. I'm used to it, I guess. You might say I'm a scientist's wife. <laughs> One of the reviews on IMDb just said, oh yeah, he's a scientist. <laughs> that was the title. <laughs> so, um, if you enjoyed giggling along with us today, I highly recommend watching that film. Uh, Kendra, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'd really love to do this again with any other his films because I would could talk about these films for hours. Oh, well, we're doing another one. And uh, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRARLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. Betty, you know what this meteor could mean to science. It could mean actual advances in the field of science. May God have mercy on us all. <laughs> one of your earth jokes I have risen I always hated you foolish music